Hi listener, this is From Ideology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favor of meaning, purpose, and unity as a whole. All right, so for this episode, I'm continuing on, uh, continuing my reading of the Red Book of C.G. Jung, A Journey into Unknown Depths. So, yeah, I'll be reviewing this a bit more. And, uh, Saying anything that comes to me, I'll go. All right. Okay. I'm not sure precisely where I was on this page, but hmm. So we were discussing before the different, the two levels of the book that we're dealing with here. The red book. So how it's got these two different planes. The first is the black books, where he's it's kind of like an outpouring from his subconscious, young subconscious, of onto the page, essentially. Very direct and emotive language. Oh well. <laughs> oh well. So um and the next stage is where he's um doing a more editing process, I suppose. and a more rational interpretation of the information that's coming out. So, and he's talking about how there's two types of thinking that are used here. There's the linear thinking and circular thinking. So the circular thinking being what he's using in the black books and which way he's doing this emotional outpouring and that's not so, well, it's not rational. It's just, um, it's very much emotional content. The linear thinking is um, much more, well, the, 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 so I guess you could say the more rational or thought thinking, rational orientated sort of way of dealing with it. And, and these correspond to the right brain and the left brain or the left brain and the right brain. Um, circular being right brain and linear being left brain. I would say, now he didn't actually put it in that way, but to me, that's what is pretty clear. So, these are linear thinking, which is rational, typical of the conscious, and which seeks to adapt to the external reality. And circular thinking, which is mythological, belongs to the unconscious and involves the language of dreams and fantasies. The symbols of the individuation process would later emerge through the synthesis of these two types of thinking. And that's interesting, because to me it seems to suggest that individuation or integrating the shadow comes from 
I guess building neurological bridges or psychologically building connections on using both left brain and right brain, right? And since left brain and right brain represent masculine energy and female energy, it's essentially, that's why the symbolism of such, such, such uh, gods such as a uh, Baphomet or Abraxas and symbols like the Jewish star, which has an upward triangle and a downward triangle, which represent masculine and female, upward being like the phallus, downward being like vagina, and like um, yin and yang as well, being masculine and female. So we've been given clues for a long time that the way is the combination of or the path in between the masculine and the feminine and the, the, the logical, rational part of us, that's left brain and the right brain. The, there's different correspondences, different forms in which this pattern emerges. So within, so without, so without, so within, so below, so above, so above, so below, you know, that whole thing. It's one of the hermetic laws. And it comes up in a lot of different ways. And it seems that here, that's what's going on. To individuate, to get to another level of consciousness, to become more conscious, we we bring together that unison of opposites, the more unconscious right brain, the more I'm not sure if we could say that the left brain is conscious, but the thoughts, more thought, ego orientated and mentally orientated left brain, and you bring it together, bring these opposites together, and they make, and the lot, and then, then you form the more integrated self, the more integrated psyche. And naturally, that is it aligns with Jung's psychology and it aligns with symbols in symbolism in religion, in a wide range of religion. And there's a reason why it all aligns and aligns with hermetics, because it's all the same thing. Some critics interpret the Jungian topos regarding the two types of thinking as though it were an affirmation that linear or rational thinking, which for Jung originates in consciousness, is superior to mythological thinking, which for Jung originated in the unconscious. I actually dealt with that last time towards the end, so I won't say anything about that. So... It says, and that his entire life's work actually represents a movement to bring back the mythological thinking abandoned as a result of the positivism typical of the Cartesian paradigm. So I would interpret that as, um, well, it starts with Aquinas, that I think. I think Aquinas is the first one who separated the idea of there's a spiritual realm and then there's the, the, the spiritual things and then there's material things. And... Uh, there's the material laws of reality and then there's a the spiritual thing 
sort of thing. And he wasn't doing it for scientific reasons. He was doing quite for the contrary. He was like, focus on the spiritual and move away from the material. I, I might be wrong about that. But that's an interpretation I've got right now. Whether later, you, this this kind of may well have led to Descartes being like, well, I think, therefore I am. Well, you might say that the overthinking West, the overly left brain West, well, I think, therefore I am, seems to sum up the mistake, in a sense. Sum up the repression of subconscious content or at least not really having a proper outlook for it because increasingly in the enlightenment it was and as science developed which you know i'm not going to deny the benefits of science but like what we have done psychologically is become increasingly out of touch with our real nature and being more just in touch with this one aspect of us and the more masculine energy of us. And from what I hear, the Arcturians have said that actually humanity have, that the feminine energy has become remarkably repressed. Um, and the fact that we don't fully realize how far it's gone. That like we see now as like a, a feminine woman isn't really, well, I suppose it's a relative thing, right? But that's not to say, oh, you grew up in the kitchen then. Like, no, 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 no. But perhaps despite how they've got more freedom now and they didn't have the freedom before, there is still something lost. And that doesn't mean, well, go back to that thing previously. Um, because it's not never really a binary choice, is it? There's always a range of options in terms of, and there's trade-offs for everything. There were certainly a great deal of trade-offs for what it was like for the Western Victorian woman, for example, in the Victorian age, and Victorian age women in Britain, let's say, you know, there was, they didn't have as much freedoms but they were in touch with their feminine side more, but there were trade-offs. Perhaps they weren't as much in, the com in touch with their feminine side as women were in 1000 BC in the same place, perhaps. Because this happened gradually. Rome became, I would say, predominated by masculine energy more than feminine energy. And in fact, this, tendency has been going for a long time and in fact the whole idea of men of men being the figures of authority has itself been due to the imbalance it started off with the imbalance being um men being in charge or at least insofar as women had authority it was more soft power and it went from there into a almost like a full F-A-U-X, I didn't know how to pronounce it. False, a sort of, it was a genuine liberation in a sense, but in a sense it stole even more of the feminine side of women because women started, well, being like 
men. I mean, if you look at the posters in World War II of the British posters in the war effort, like of women being contributing to the war effort while men were out fighting, it shows this woman flexing muscles like a man. Okay, but that's masculine symbology. It's a masculine portrayal. And that was a propaganda piece. Like, no doubts about it. You can't deny it. that's a propaganda piece. I mean, it was a poster, like, buttoned up by the government, encouraging women to work. I mean, like, yeah, we had to agree that that's a propaganda piece. You might say, oh, okay, maybe you could say it was a necessary propaganda. I'm not saying that, but I can understand what someone will say it. But even that's a stretch. The point is, from that point onwards, the narrative switched. It was no longer a woman in the the kitchen. Let's to say to symbolise it. You know, no longer a woman, just the homemakers who do the children. No, no, no. They're workers we can exploit as well. It's, oh, we, we we don't just need to have the men. No, I mean it's making it sound like a socialist now. Look, I'm not saying I'm against work or I'm against employment necessarily, although. As you go into 5D, things are going to change so people are more going to be working for themselves and as according to what their passion is. But then aside from that, I don't see women, I would say that they would that the, the what the elites were pushing for was move to the idea of well, women can work. Well, and they can be mothers. So they can work, they could do work oh but like a man does like so this idea of women being liberated also made them even more masculinized rather than being the, the masculine dominated energy and and masculine dominated society it's kind of two different sides of the same coin really two different aspects of the same thing at different levels rather than being okay the, the male the males in society predominate in power thus male energy prevailing. Now it's almost like male energy is now prevailing in women. See, that's the ultimate adding insult to injury, right? The final liberation is actually more of the femininity of women stolen from them than ever before. So in a way it wasn't really a liberation, it was worse in a way. And I'm not saying women shouldn't have independence and liberation and rights, I'm saying surely there's a way in which that can be happen, that, that we can have that without femininity itself being something that women are out of touch with in their own, in themselves. I mean, for men to be in touch with the feminine side, I mean, that seems to be encouraged to some extent. And all oh, that's a good thing perhaps, right? As long as the masculine side in men isn't like out. As long, you know, it's a balance, right? The important thing is it's a balance. So, and what happens when women spend all that time working, trying to be like, do it in a way that man does it as well. And well, this, and not just that, they're out of touch with women femininity, which is that, that part of parenthood is important. So not just they spend less time with their kids mothering, but when they do mother, they've got less of that feminine energy in them. So the mothering is less motherly. Perhaps it's a way to 
fuck us up psychologically. So we grow up without enough masculine and feminine energy and we don't realize what we're missing because it's normal to us. And then we act up due to the lack of that nurturing aspect in us, which makes us less kind and less in touch with our hearts, which means we do more cruelty to others, which you see the problem, right? I think this is absolutely deliberate and it's to prevent the awakening and it's gonna fail, but in the meantime, it's causing a lot of trouble. And I think this is part of the picture. If you, if you were put yourself in the, the shoes of the um, of the service itself, aliens and energy negative energy beings that want to consume our souls or whatever the fuck they want to do, like, uh, like what would you do if you're manipulating the cabal, blah, 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 etc.? You know, how would you do it? Well, you get them out of balance, you get humans out of balance with our energies and, well, you do what I explained basically. It's exactly what you'd do. And then you'd start introducing, once people are out of touch, you'd really, to really nail in the coffin, you know, you'd start introducing cyborg things and then the energy fields of the electric computer components would interfere with the LEM field of the body and gradually we'd be less, less alive in a general sense, I'm not, I don't mean, I mean a symbolic and a literal sense. And so just, just gradually boil up that frog until the frog just whimp, dies in a whimper. They, they want humanity to go around a weeper, whimper, you know, they would get us a week, really weak first. And then it's like, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't even bother rising up militarily and like taking over through force. Maybe we'd just be, be completely compliant by that point, according to their plan. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because people, humanity have been underestimated time and time again. Um, and we're awakening now. And the thing is, if they were sane, they would have realized they were, they couldn't possibly succeed. But they serve the self. So they're insane. That's why they're doing such an insane thing that's an utterly in defiance of the divine order and utterly going against it. But then again, why do you think there's such darkness, right? Such darkness exists in the universe, in reality, that energy exists, it's part of reality. What we're going through now is the beginning of an integration phase. I don't have anything to back that up with, it's just an intuition, right? An integration of the shadow of the universe into It basically, imagine the universe is a person and that person is integrating its shadow. It just started to do that. It's making progress with that. Huh. Maybe it's going through an awakening on another level, another update, but let's not worry about that. And well, there's been also the Ryan Wars and stuff. I mean, that, that might have been like the fight for light or darkness within it, you know, within its being, you know, deciding what its polarity is or whatever. It seems that the universe seems to have chosen light from what we can see, but there's some dark, there's some holdouts. And it seems from what I hear that some of the one of the last holdouts of significant note where they're actually 
really hold up with a little power and a lot of influence is actually Earth, funny enough. Um, but, you know, Astar Command and the like, they have got quite a well-developed system. I don't know how they do it exactly, but it must be a way in which they liberate us, liberate people, liberate worlds, without sacrificing too much of their own polarity, but they're still at the same time engaging in military engagements where they have to. I, I don't know exactly how they do it, but it seems that it seems that the Orions lost the Orion War. It seemed that was a long time ago anyway. Since then, there've been a gradual sweeping up process. And perhaps on a universal level, that's just like the universal self choosing light. However, the thing is, there has to be some degree of balance nonetheless. What this really is, now if you consider how, according to the law of one, once you get to a certain point in sixth density, you can't be polarized anymore. So ascending up in vibration and frequency and moving closer to that light actually has to go unpolarized. To, to truly get really, to truly go to the light, at a certain point, you can't be, you can't be so to others anymore, or you can't be solely that anymore. You've got to integrate it together with the darkness. So the darkness needs to be integrated in the light, and the light needs to be integrated in the darkness. So which means that we can't have, we can't have these negative beings and entities, negative orientated beings, playing around anymore as much. That, that time's gone in the universe, that, that's ending. Now this ending takes time. It's not like, well, what is time really though? It's a gradual process. But certainly on Earth, what we're seeing is is a shift where humanity is awakening. Now, for the time being on Earth, we're actually going towards service to others, which is great. I mean, we've got until until when we're moving until like mid-level sixth density to where we can be service to others. And then at that point, we'll have to be neutral and unpolarized. But we've got plenty of time until then. That's great, right? So, but over on an overall holistic level universally, I get a sense that, yeah, it's moving towards unpolarized. But that's fine. Unpolarized isn't unpleasant. I mean, you've experienced it plenty of times because you're, in a sense, because until you, most people, a lot of people don't, make a choice until a certain point, like they're in the in-between area, but it's not by choice. It's unconsciously unpolarized or unchosen anyway. Anyway, how did I get here? I mean, I, I appreciate where I went. <laughs> I'm grateful that I, I feel like it was good what I was saying there or whether like I don't entirely oh, I need to like backtrack okay how did it get here okay okay so there's awakening male and female energies right yeah um the imbalancing of male and female energies has been deliberate I won't go beyond it because I already have done that so 
And this whole thing is connected to what Jung was doing using a combination of masculine and feminine approaches or energies in his integration process in his red book through the black book and the the black books and the uh, the other bit where he was so yeah he was doing spontaneous imaginings noted in his black books an active imagination period lasting 1913 to 1915, typing up and elaborating these imaginations after careful reflection. Collation, sending to friends to get feedback. The last stage was uh, producing the calligraphic edition with modifications and other detail, all right? So, where are we? In terms of the presence of mythological thinking in the conscious, it is worth remembering that parables, para alongside balos, throwing, casting, and metaphors, meta, beyond, foreign, to lead, are methods of generating a reaction from listeners through the use of a consciously articulated symbol. The beautiful parables of the New Testament, such as the parable of the mustard seed, if you're curious, the power of the mustard seed, I think is, Jesus is talking about, well, the mustard seed is a very, very small seed, right? One of the smallest seeds that was known about at the time, anyway, in the, in the region. And suppose you plant that seed, you water it with love, you give love and kindness to it, you water it, and it grows into a pretty big tree. One of the bigger trees in the region and just from a really really tiny seed so all the everything that makes up a tree is actually within that seed and you give it love and it manifests to its full potential but it already really was encoded within that now obviously jesus didn't say encoded but i would say well, this is my version of the story anyway and the prodigal son so the bad son who misbehaves, takes drugs and rock and roll, you know, he he's doing all that. The older son is like being responsible and looking at that and like, okay, not good, not good. You're not being a good son. You're not following the rules. Badly behaved, right? So the rock and roll son goes around, I don't know, snorting cocaine in all the towns in the, the realm, right? Even goes to other countries, does the same thing tries out other things too, all sorts of things. Comes back, he's done all sorts of things. He's done things he regrets, he's made mistakes, but he's learned a lot. And he comes back and the father welcomes him back in. First of all, the father's grateful. The father's really grateful. His long lost son has returned. He might, he'd almost given up on him, right? But he, he's come back, he's come back. And he can tell his son's more mature. Now, that was actually in the story I'm at again. So, but the older son is looking at this, or the other son is looking at this, and I'm like, but father, why would you let him do this? At least you're acting like nothing happened. He's just come back and you're not even upset at him. What's going on? And I can't remember what the father says, but ultimately it's like, I'm just happy he's back. And that's the important thing. 
And I, I will add that I get the sense that the the son that didn't, no, the other son that didn't go off adventuring during storting cocaine off, you know, off the uh, backsides of um, prostitutes or whatever. Like he, um, he doesn't know about his in the darkness at all as much, but he's not even so much aware of it. He's probably been spiritually bypassing for ages. Um, so if anything, he's probably got more darkness with his subconscious than the prodigal son is maybe actually starts. But why did he come back? Why do you think he came back? Or do you think he just got bored? What do you think he'd be wanting to do? Like he's got a lot of less opportunity to be hedonistic back at home. Why did he return? Because he learns his lesson because he's actually integrated a shadow at least to some extent. So actually he's got less of that inner darkness within him now. The older brother, he doesn't even know of his own inner darkness. All he's doing is just us subconsciously shadow projecting through self-righteous judgment on his brother. And he doesn't even like the idea of his brother being redeemed. No, 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 no. He's like, he doesn't think his brother should be allowed back. He doesn't even want his brother to be redeemed. He just wants his brother gone because that's how he feels about his own darkness, his own negativity. He just wants it gone. He just wants to ignore it and just be pure light all the time, but he's not. Because his own brother, who you think he would miss and would be glad to see and would be grateful has returned. He doesn't even wanna see. So who's, aligned to the light in this story. The prodigal son, well, he's by the end. He goes through a hero's journey. At least he had the courage to leave the house. Did the other son do that? No. No, it's understandable. I'm, I'm not gonna say that, well, I mean, in a way, it's a good thing he wasn't like doing the bad, you know, going around sinning or whatever I, I don't that's more of a christian phrasing anyway but you know you know what i mean doing all sorts of hedonistic things whatever in a way it's a good thing but you learn through mistakes if you don't make those mistakes you don't learn like so anyway i feel like there are important lessons to learn from that that story that's my take on it I, I don't know. I might have been, I might have been drivel, but it feels right to me. Hopefully, you found it interesting. Anyway, examples of this use of metaphor by the conscious to achieve a particular purpose. The mythological thinking of the unconscious is spontaneous, original, and totally out of the control of the conscious, which is what gives it its originality. I consider the integration of these two types of thinking to be of vital importance. Mythological thinking permits a spontaneous survival of the experience of original images, and irrational thinking is a more conscious mode that attempts to integrate new experiences into everyday life. Well, that's important, so the combination is obviously valuable. Reading Jung's irrational experiences that were sometimes completely beyond the expectations of the conscious mind, we can see that a rational mind at work providing rational explanations in every attempt to organize the material so that it is accessible to the conscious. 
The use of the symbols provided a middle ground within this dynamic between the conscious and the unconscious, making it easier to navigate between the known and the unknown. And that is why we have symbols. And that is why symbols like Baphomet are actually quite significant. There was a light and the dark combination of these opposites integrated in one. It's a more realistic idea of the divine. I know some people think, okay, well, that symbol is like, that deity is just like evil Satanism, right? Well, maybe there have been people who are into the dark side of the occult who have used that symbolism, but perhaps they're missing the point of that symbolism if they're just embracing one side of it rather than both sides of it. So, yeah. Another thing, perhaps they deliberately used it so that people wouldn't actually cotton on to the importance of integrating opposites because they would see symbols that relate to that and be like, well, that was used by those of the darkness, right? So it can't be good. And then not realize the, the, you know, the use of that, the benefits of that. Seems like a sort of, you know, psyops are not new, are they? They're not. I mean, what, what do you think what happened to Christianity was? It's basically a psyop, a Roman psyop. You know, Christianity is one of um, many lifetimes and it was, had more in common with Buddhism than it does now anyway. And that wasn't considered acceptable in fact, they, there's a reason why so many Rome, there's a reason why so many Christians were fed to the killed, fed to the lions. It's because it was legitimately a threat to the negatively orientated order of the Romans who were that way because they were influenced by perhaps the Orions, perhaps something else, some negative polarity. You know, they were negatively polarized, or at least their least were and those who influenced them. So something that would enable to be awakened, well, that was a threat. So they were fed to the lions and then their whole belief system was co-opted with a psyop. Within this perspective, symbols acquire a central importance in organic organization of the Red Book. And Jung determines this fact from the very start of Liber Primus, when he discusses the way of what is to come. He cites the words of the prophet Isaiah, who talks about the way of the savior. Jung interprets a savior as symbolic, as only symbols can open up new paths. In all the collected works, symbols are presented as fundamental, a fundamental mechanism between the conscious and the unconscious. A quotation from the alchemical text is cited in the frontispiece of Psychology and Alchemy, Jung, 1945, quote, for those who have the symbol, the passage is easy. And interestingly,
not Hermes to his guest, this guy before that, who's the same guy. Uh, wow, I, my, my memory is not really working well to, today. Uh, Thoth, and, and I've done readings of, oh, I should do more read. I should do more episodes of that actually. But the um, Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Atlantean. Um, one thing he talked about at a certain point is, I think he was talking about the secret passage under the Sphinx or in the Sphinx or something. Or was it a secret passage in the, um, there's a gateway anyway, in Giza, one of those under the pyramid or under the, in the pyramid or something or under the Sphinx, one of the two. There's this, and there's, you need a key to get through, right? And I have a sense this key is not literal. I had this idea that perhaps it was this vibrate, you need a high enough vibration or something to the vibration was the key. Perhaps it is related to that in some way, but I also got an idea that it might be related to a symbol. Perhaps understanding symbolism in the right way might enable you to work out or intuit the answer. And I don't know what that is. I'm just saying, like, it's, I reckon it's with the symbols. I don't know why. I just. The idea that it's related to the symbols and what I was reading there came to me. So I don't know what it means. I wonder if you could get something more from that than I did. See also Sham Dazani, 2009, page 229. Or maybe this passage, maybe this is not a literal place. Maybe that place symbolizes path within maybe there's a symbol that is the key to opening the portal within us for ascension i don't know the true level structure of the red book is evident in the encounter between biblical the biblical figures of elijah and salome or of all the characters that interact with Jung, these two have a crucial importance these two have strange personifications. These two strange personifications appear together in Liber Primus and also at the end of the third part, scrutiny, scrutinies. Elijah, the powerful patriarch of the Old Testament, tells Jung that the girl accompanying him is his daughter Salome and that they will be companions through eternity. The meeting with these two figures expresses Jung's basic attitude towards the psychological phenomenon known as the reality of the soul. Elijah tells him that Salome is Jung's sister. She is uh, the biblical character responsible for the decapitation of the prophet John the Baptist. This fact and Salome's demonstrations of love cause Jung great anxiety. How is this possible, he asks himself. How can the wise Elijah have Salome as his daughter, who is blind and has feelings of love for him? page 246. Of all, all of this deeply irrational content demonstrates the incomprehensiveness of the unconscious material, although it, may, it, it be at the same time extremely real and effective, as Jung would later repeat on various occasions. Hmm. I don't really know what that means, but there's a masculine and feminine aspect to that, of course, because, you know, Elijah and Salome are masculine and feminine, so, yeah. 
Jung then seeks out to form creative associations and make psychodynamic interpretations with this spontaneous material from the unconscious. In order to do so, he uses his theoretical formulations resulting to relating to the polarity of psychic content and the concepts of compensation. Assuming a conscious logical position, he writes that Elijah represents his thinking psychological function, which is more nuanced and superior and is represented by a spiritual prophet. Solomon, on the other hand, symbolizes his feeling psychological function, which is less nuanced and therefore represented by the daughter of Herodias, responsible for the decapitation of John the Baptist, who is also blind, her eyes covered. Maybe the fact that the representation of the masculine figure seems more positive or well-developed compared to the feminine one. If you consider how with the anima and the animus, the development of the figure of what they're attracted to is a reflection of their own development or that development of the opposing opposite that is um, gender, then perhaps it shows that Jung's masculine side at the time, or maybe societies at the time, was more in a superior position relative to the feminine energy, whether they were in him or in society or both. That resonates. This psychological interpretation does not resolve the question of the reality of the soul, however, which is essential, which is central in this confrontation with the figures of the unconscious. The figures present themselves as real from a psychological point of view. Elijah does not accept that he and Salome are symbols, affirming that this is a rational collocation by Jung that does not do them justice. Elijah and Salome confirm themselves to be real. Here Jung unveils the concept of psychological reality that he would later develop in his essay on the nature of the psyche, 1954b. And he would and other work produced during the later stages of a creative process. After the surprising encounter with these two unlikely figures, he begins to expand on the theme to be, develop his psychological interpretation. The figures of Elijah and Salome provide extensive research material for the theory of psychological opposites that Jung elaborated in his study of psychological types. They also provide a connection with the method of a historical am amplification. Going to great lengths to understand these almost incomprehensible characters, Jung seeks to associate them with historical figures of old prophets accompanied by young women. This is the wise old man and the young girl pairing that also is also seen in the Greek alchemist Zosimos and his soror Theosebia, Theosebia, the second century Gnostic Simon Magus and the young Helena and a range of other pairs found in the history of philosophy, alchemy, religion, and fairy tales. These pairs represent the eternal flow of psychic energy within the process of psychological transformation. Here we see 
different ways of relating to numinous figures of the unconscious, of which Elijah and Salome are representatives. These characters have such a fascinating power over the conscious that they can, they cause, they can cause disassociative phenomena to occur that affect the ego. This is two ways of defending itself against such power to fascinate, fascinate to bind. So it's a bind, it binds us or takes a hold of us, possesses us in a sense. Rational ex explanation and this amplification method. Rational explanation in this case would be interp the interpretation of the two characters as representing nothing but psychological functions of the conscious thinking, Elijah, and feeling, Salome. Although it may be effective in protecting the integrity of the conscious, I find this rational defense inadequate, as even though the ego appears to strengthen, it produces a certain level of disassociation and a loss of the wealth of values that the unconscious experience begins brings to the conscious, or perhaps repression of subconscious content. The second experience involve, involving Elijah and Salome does not need to be completely explained as something other like psychological functions, but can you understood to be an interior phenomenon? This pair from the unconscious, just as one of the numerous repetitions of the wise old man and the young girl pairing that can be seen in fairy tales, the old man who imprisons the damsel on the mountain and myths throughout the ages. The second method does not simply reduce everything to a rational formula or it doesn't imprison her in the tower, you know, the wizard imprisoning the maiden in the tower, keeping her underdeveloped because she's not interacting with the world, right? Perhaps that happens humanity. Perhaps that's why the feminine energy is, I'm not sure if underdeveloped is the word, but suppressed in some sense because The wisdom of the male was accepted and revered. Was the wisdom of the female energy revered in the same sense? I would say no. And there's more justice to the rational character of the unconscious, leaving room for more mystery. Surprising experiences that are totally devoid of any conscious logic can be found at various points along the narrative. The approach towards Elijah's serpent is another example. As if it were completely subject to the imagination, this serpent passes from Elijah to Jung in, following, in the following dialogue from chapter 21 of Liber Secundus, The Magician. Me, Jung, so I'll just say, Okay, instead of me, I'll say you. Okay, Jung, my dear old man, where is your serpent, Elijah? She has gone astray. I believe she was stolen. Since then, things have been somewhat gloomy with us. Jung, I know where your serpent is. I have her. She gave me hardness, wisdom, and magical power. Elijah, away with you, accursed robber. May God punish you. Page 324. You know, interestingly... Jung reminds me of Odin in this situation. He stole the feminine power from himself. Odin, you motherfucker. Odin 
being like Odin symbolically being a bit like Enlil of the Sumerian tablets. That sky god that influenced and seems to be worshipped by Indo-European cultures. Well, Odin, what represents this, him? So there was this marriage between Odin and his wife. <laughs> I forgot his name, you know, very impressive on me. So there was this other family, technically they were, they weren't from Valhalla, they were, um, Frost giants, maybe? Some kind of giants, anyway. And they there was this marriage, but somehow, I don't know how, in the process, Odin was able to steal the feminine magic for himself, for his own use. And this seems to represent symbolically the imbalance of masculine and feminine energies in humanity. Perhaps it was not stolen by humanity or by men, but stolen by Enlil. If we were to go with that particular thread that I'm going with here. I believe this process is fundamental in the dialectical consciousness between the automate autonomous power of images with the, the dialectical consciousness with the autonomous power of images. The unconscious has the power to fascinate, yet the dialectic position of consciousness is essential. Someone who is actively engaged in active imagination strengthens his consciousness in the process. The conscious element, Jung, can to a certain extent integrate the energy of the unconscious, the serpent, which is previously in possession of a personification of the unconscious, Elijah. I would say that there's a very much a, an alternative definition, interpretation. And I'm not going to say what is a valid one or not, and why would there be only one inter one meaning for things. Um, there may be multiple ways we can interpret this that are of use here for us. This rich imagery can be found throughout the Red Book, but the interpretive position of the conscious is fundamental. At this point, it is important not to identify with the images. Yeah, that's important. You don't want to be possessed by those images, those archetypal images. It seems to me that the reduction of Elijah's power to fascinate is important with the dialectic process, although the serpent maintains its strength as a symbol of psychic energy undergoing transformation as it passes from the unconscious to the conscious. Transformation, the snake. Yeah. Transformation. Hmm. I, I had something like an idea, but 
I don't know. <sighs> Although the serpent maintains its strength as a symbol of psychic energy, undergoing transformation as it passes from the unconscious to the conscious, thus allowing conscious transformation, not just subconscious transformation, which is valuable, is it not? Jung summarizes the broad and complex symbolism of the serpent of the three fundamental types. The chthonic serpent, the serpent as a symbol of time, and the serpent as a symbol of salvation, the Sota serpent. Jung, 2008, page 217. The serpent that passes from Elijah to Jung is a Sota type that symbolizes salvation as it represents a psychic energy that has get, been gained, that is gained by the conscious. Now, it is not a coincidence that relatively soon before 2012 and 2020, we have been getting releases and publications of Jung's work. The Age of Aquarius is now, we're in the Age of Aquarius now, right? I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think the universe, well, I think the universe, things are aligned. Astrology is alignment with the things in the universe. Synchronicity is that too. So it's aligned. Now, Carl Jung was a prophet of the coming age of Aquarius. I'm not the first person who said it, but the idea resonates with me. So and I think maybe Eddington was the first person who said it. I don't know. Eddington was someone who was interpreting Jung's work or one of his students, I think. He was talking about Ion. Uh, well, this is the next Ion, the age of Aquarius, the Ion of Aquarius. Actually, I'm curious, what does no, I'll let myself do this. I'll let myself go in this digression. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's wondered about this, but let's look at... Let's look at... Oh, wait, I can't minimize Zoom while I'm in the meeting. Huh. Okay. Then let's look at... I could use my phone, actually, but I've already started doing it this way. Yeah, probably not the ideal way to do it. But I wanted to look up the meaning of Aquarius. I mean, like, if someone's an Aquarian, what sort of person are they? What can we infer about the age from that? Oh dear, seems I made a mistake. Wonderful. My laptop is not dealing with this well. Okay. At least I'm back in here now. Okay, no internet connect. Really? Well, in the meantime, I'm just going to carry on with the book. So, where was I? Okay, that's where I was, right. So that's the yay end.
of that chapter, we're in chapter four. Heroism and heroes in the Red Book. I, I think I might be getting, well, I've got something here now. No, no internet connection, huh? All right. There's a quote here. There were both heroes of evil and heroes of good. Francois de Rochambeaucourt or something. The first moment in which the figure of the hero appears in the Red Book is in the fifth chapter of Liber Primus, Descent into the Hell of... Descent into the Hell in the Future. Descent into Hell in the Future. Got it right the third time. This encounter with the hero takes place after Jung's rediscovery of his soul and his imaginary isolation in the desert. Far removed from his everyday life, he starts to fantasize about the descent during which he will discover his most intimate internal processes. This descent motif, which the ancient Greeks called katabasis, was very common in the initiation rituals of traditional societies. The hero needs to descend into the world of the dead in order to undergo renovation, cheat death and return into the world of the living transformed. This process of descent found in ancient mystery religions still exists in Christianity with the representation of Christ descending into hell and being resurrected on the third day in a state of corpus glorificationness. This process is described in the creed uh, and is fundamental, a fundamental part of the Christian belief system. In modern psychotherapy, the, uh, the archetypal motif of death and resurrection is part of the therapeutic process. Every patient needs to die, descend into his or her, of course, own personal hell, and hit rock bottom in order to transform yourself, himself, but yourself also applies. This is the only way by which genuine analytical analytic process can take place. The only process by which a genuine only way by which a genuine analytic process can take place, and is the reason that whenever somebody seeks therapy, he maintains a hidden ambivalence. On one hand, he would like to undergo therapy and to find his individuality, but on the other hand, there's a part of him that resists the process in which he has to die. He is afraid and seeks the whole range of excuses that enable him to avoid diving deeper into his issues. Lack of time, lack of money, not the right time. As we have already seen in chapter two, in Liber Novus, we encounter an unprecedented situation in which Jung is the patient, the therapist, and the treatment. This is a very difficult and challenging condition, and it is under the, the, these types of conditions that something new is created. New seeds are sown, and the path to a new theory is opened up. Liber Novus was written in an original and creative style that Jung developed in order to work on his inner demons and build a new path for himself. He did this using creative imagination process, this creative imagination process, and through a dialogue with a multitude of inner characters. The interesting thing is, to do this, you've got to have dialogue through inner characters that you do not identify with. That's the key. It's not enough to do it, but identify with them. Um, Because then I was, when I tried it, I was basically confusing symbols in the collective unconscious as my aspects of my personal subconscious. 
which is why perhaps it wasn't working. I don't know. The hero must fall. As he descends, the author him finds himself in an underground world similar to the world of the dead described in the religious traditions. This is described in the Liber Primus in a threat threatening scene with the light of consciousness becoming dim, the frightful noises, shrieking noises and the water becoming dark. These visions stand out in this terrifying imaginary environment. The figure of a dead blonde hero in the dark water, a thousand serpents veiling the sun and a scarab floating past. These images appear in small illustrations added to the body of the text. This is the first representation of the death of the hero in the red book. And this goes on to be addressed in more detail in chapter six. It seems as though one of Jung's previously adaptive attitude to dying and is no longer useful and must be abandoned. Although the scarab seems to be a shadowy character, in ancient Egypt, it was a symbol of rebirth and restoration and was thought to push the sun along its course, causing it to be reborn from the darkness. The sun is a symbol of the conscious. And in this scene, it is engulfed by thousands of dark serpents in a representation of the dying hero. The conscious must die and return to its deepest foundations to question itself and seek out new paths. Now let's let the light shine really. I mean, what I'm gonna do. Yeah, if you're listening, you can't hear, you don't know what I'm talking about, so. Never mind, it's just the light shining, glaring in the camera. So, Hmm. I mean, serpents are symbols of transformation, and there are a lot of them blocking out the sun. It could be a symbol of thousands of people awakening, but in the process, things looking dark before the dawn, as in what has been happening, especially in 2020. And to be honest, when you get dawn, it's still dark for a while, isn't it? And we're in 2020, actually we're still in 2020, not 2021 yet, but you know, new eye on and all. In a striking dream that Jung had in December 1913, the concept of hero that must be that must fall returns, revealing that internal events were inextricably linked to the outside world. I was with a youth in high mountains, then Siegfried's horn resounded over the mountains with a jubilant sound. We knew that our mortal enemy was coming. We were armed and lurked beside a narrow rocky path to murder him. Then we saw him coming high across the mountains on a chariot made of bones of the dead. As he came round the turn ahead of us, we fired at the same time and he fell slain and a terrible rain swept down. Page 241. Jung painted the scene of, killing of, of the killing of Siegfried inside the follow volume of the Liber Novus, illustration one. This is a message that the hero must fall and that this was how Jung interpreted it. In the outside world, rebels were killing heroes and members of high society represented them. So perhaps celebrities need to fall from grace, especially the ones that were doing dark rituals on Epstein's Island, for example. 
I mean, that, that might be part of it. Uh, also, we all need to go through a process of rebirth, which means we all need to go through some kind of fall. I mean, I would like to think that I've already gone through that. Maybe, maybe not. Have you? I don't know. Um, but individuation is and awakening, it's not an easy process. So don't expect it to be. So to anyone who watches this on YouTube, I'm not sure how clear it is, but the murder of the hero Siegfried, I'll show you. Uh, wait, it, uh, yeah, that seems about, that seems like it. So Siegfried is a German hero, right? German mythological hero, I think. And there's this martial spirit that the Germans had um we saw it in world war one and two i'm sure you're aware from history and it existed for a while before that as you know and i suppose a lot of energy martial energy was being released through these wars maybe it was part of an important process however horrific but That heroic, violent energy, and I don't mean heroic as a as saying it's a good thing. Just that they are at least viewed as heroes, or manifest that role like a typely, as in in relation to the hero's journey. Oh, the hero's journey will die as well. Perhaps. It's another idea. The whole idea of the hero who goes on the journey needs to die. And from the ashes, what we we're going to get is something else, something new. I was on a different track of thought there, but I came up with a different interpretation. Well, I mean, Germany lost the war, um, the wars. But it's not just representing Germany, is it? The violent energy of the past is ending, and in many, on many different levels, in many different ways. I mean, he was riding on bones. What is the bone of the bones of those who died in wars previously? Essentially, there's a lot of darkness from the past, and we need to transcend that. We can't just do things the way they've been done before. And I mean, to do it that way, did what, that, that's the way the cabal want to do it. And I, it doesn't look for like a pretty direction to go in at all. So killing of heroes and members of high society who represented them. This dream preceded the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and of the Austrian-Hungarian empire by a rebel in Sarajevo. And I also believe that this episode that I'm recording right now precedes the mass arrests of our, he our heroes who weren't really heroic at all. We'll see if that plays out.
These violent events would lead to the start of the First World War. In his reflections, Jung was raising, realizing that the old values that he held in high regard had to perish. Our old values that we have held in high regard had to perish. He remarked that he did not particularly admire Siegfried, the famous hero from the Song of the Nibelungs, a 12th century epic based on Nordic mythology. And also this whole, this whole culture warring thing, regardless of what side you're on, on these things. And this whole ideological struggle, it's all a manifestation of this this warrior fighting for the, the good fight for justice thing. Smiting down the evil ones and being of the light. And I don't know, it is like a, it's ultimately a sort of, spiritual bypassing thing anyway, self-righteous spiritual bypassing thing. It, it, Maybe it served its purpose at the time, but now we're, we're gonna move past it. We've got to work, we'll go past this battle against that other side because we're moving past opposites now. We're moving past dualism now. And above all that duality, there has been this, I mean, there's the cabal above us, right? And some of them might be taken down, but you know, like divide and conquer. So won't we stop being divided and liberate, right? Unite and liberate. This is analogous to the confrontation of spirits, spirit of the depths with the spirit of the times whose values Siegfried incarnates. Okay, so. It is interesting that Jung is helped by a personification of the collective unconscious noted in his black books as the little brown man. This man is a configuration of the psychological shadow that needs to be taken into account when attitudes must change in such a way. Integrate our shadows and stop conforming. Also integrate shadows and awaken and delete so-called heroes who have been oppressing us fall. So yeah, I don't think he meant it that way, but that's what I'm getting from it. The visions and dreams described in the Red Book contain various representations of the confrontation of old values other than the hero who must fall. Jung uses his theme in various parts of the book, describing the intervention of two opposing principles of the spirit of the times, which represents the values of the conscious, and the spirit of the depths, which represents new values. The language of the spirit of the times obeys the known and expected canon and feels familiar. The spirit of the depths introduces something completely surprising and new, you know, like New Age spirituality and conspiracy theories. When Jung is astounded by the death of, his, of the hero and sees that this is a new enigma that he must resolve at any cost, the autonomous voice of the spirit of the depth says, the highest truth is one and the same with the absurd. Or at least that which seems absurd before we realize it was true the whole time. So 
there was interestingly, I don't know what it's called, quite a quite a good critique, criticism of the law of attraction. I don't know how the guy did it, all it's called. I watched it the other day. They made quite a good case from the perspective of how to put it. I, I guess positivist epistemology. Um, a harsh way of putting it, the harshest way of putting it would be scientism. But I don't think we can necessarily assume it's scientism just because it's not convenient. I do think there are some things pointed out in it that dealt with like, I mean, these any like anything, spiritual principles can be abused. Anyway, why was I mentioning that? There was a reason for that. Well, it would seem to be, if anything, a representation of the spirit of the times, that video. What it's saying is these this spirituality, this scientific science we've learned, right? This empirical enlightenment process, it's, well, I mean, it's science. And we've got all the science and technology from it, right? And that's what's valuable. And that's what's safe. And the danger and the harm comes from diverging from that with this dangerous new age bunk, which is just like, because it's not based on evidence, right? And it's understandable. And it all makes perfect sense according to the paradigm of, and the way of doing things that we've been doing. And look where that got us. And Jung seems to identify that there need to be new ways of doing things. And it, so I think they made, I mean, he even criticized the water memory thing, but it was mostly criticizing the source. It was saying the source isn't reliable because it's generally a Indian university that is known to be unreliable because it's pseudoscience. Essentially, it seemed to break down to it's not science. And some people seem to have been gaslighted or something because they, they felt that they were responsible for their own negative experiences due to their own emo negative emotion, and this gaslights people. I mean, it gaslights people if it's false. And also, if people spiritually bypass or simultaneously believing in the law of attraction and not doing their last shadow work, then that's not going to work for them, is it? So obviously just focusing on the law of attraction and not in shadow work and other things that are important to consider isn't really healthy, especially if you're focusing on the law of attraction, trying to get things for your own selfish desires. Interestingly, and conveniently for those doing the guy doing the video, he only mentioned the law of attraction. He didn't mention this other spiritual aspects of it. He just mentioned the law of attraction. Kind of a more convenient way to deal with it. But okay, fair enough. I mean, still, despite, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to argue against positivist epistemology or science, 
the epistemology of science is the best way to do it and diverging from that is pseudoscience and unreliable and not good, right? And that dangerous, harmful things happen from, from diverging from that. I suppose it, it goes against the paradigm and the, the spirit of the age, spirit of the times to do that. I mean, to do that is to be cert a certified crackpot by the view of society, isn't it? But if you're listening to this, the idea of that doesn't really bother you, does it? Doesn't bother me. And to the extent that being judged that way bothers me, you know, it shows shadow work that I need to do. And same applies to you. So, and also we can't just be blind and then we can't refuse to consider criticisms of our perspective. It's important. And yeah, that's my take on that, which is a digression that I'm happy to make. The little brown man, the shadow. Now, it might be tempting to say that's racist, but I don't think that would be a helpful way to look into things because there's a lot of interesting symbolism there. That sort of interpretation would certainly not be helping things. It would just be... Never mind anyway. The visions and dreams reflected in the Red Book contain various representations of the confrontation of the old values, of old values other than the hero who must fall. Oh, I'd read a bit more than that. The language of the spirit of the times obeys the known and expected canon and feels familiar. Like, we must follow science and the experts at all times. Do not question, wear the mask. You must do it or people would die. Not that the guy was saying that, but like that's the, the, the sort of, that's how it could be applied, you know. It's an example, an illustration of that kind of reasoning, that kind of logic. It's understandable, actually. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to begrudge the people who go with that, but... The spirit of the depths introduces something completely surprising and new. When Jung is astounded by the death of the hero and sees that this is an enigma that he must resolve at any cost, the autonomous voice of the spirit of the depths says, the highest truth is one and the same with the absurd, as I said before. While princes and heroes were being sacrificed in the outside world, a hero was being assassinated on the inside. These were and other parallels appear at moments that were highly significant for the Western world and for Jung as an individual. These significant coincidences tend to manifest when fundamental changes occur on both the outside and the inside. There was a profound association between Europe's dramatic crisis and the First World War and Jung's internal dilemma. These possible associations between the inner cosmology and the outer world may have also been the seed for Jung's later theories on synchronicity. See also on the nature of the psyche 1954b and synchronicity and an a-causal connecting principle 1952b. I don't know what says b but there we go. This possibility should not be ruled out. During large transitions and times of change, the ego is in a very close proximity to the unconscious and synchronistic ph phenomena tend to occur. 
At the time of the Liber Novus was being written, both Jung himself and the European society as a whole were passing through an intense period of transition. And it is at these times that coincidental and synchronistic events between the inner and outer worlds can occur. However, in order to make this interpretation, we must use the concept of synchronicity, a theoretical a theoretic tool that Jung would only develop much later. At the time of these phenomena, Jung was not thinking in these terms. In fact, he was extremely impressed by the coincidence of his recurring vision of Europe being flooded with bodies and the First World War that followed soon after. He confessed to Mercier Eliade that no one could have been happier than he was when the war started. Shem Dazani, 2009, page 201 to 202. I mean, it does sound a bit morbid that he was happy at the beginning of the war he was looking at it from a much different lens. Um, and I think I can understand. It does sound a bit odd though, it does breaking standards, doesn't it? What he meant by this was that when the war started, he was relieved that his vision had been prophetic in nature and was not simply a psychopathological manifestation to court. The brown little man, the role of the little brown man, the trickster, is a highly, is highly creative in Jung's fantasy. When he appears, he does not only counteract an old attitude that needs to be abandoned, but the entire collective shadow of the time that was starting to appear in Europe's cultural unconscious. This is symbolized by the omnipotence of the German hero Siegfried. This fantasy is at the same time personal and collective, and despite all the suffering of the First World War, the Second World War was still needed in order to compensate for all the negative aspects that Siegfried represents, namely the pathological omnipotence that results from identification with the hero. Omnipotence, omnip, that's the same thing. The logical, the problem with the trickster had an important role in Jung's later work concerning the principle of inversion and the rooting in the instincts. The trickster is opposed to, but at the same time compensates for, the excessive spiritualization of the classical hero, which can lead to a dissociation of his roots and to the sin of pride that the ancient Greeks called hubris. See Brandau, 1991. Jung described a trickster archetype using Paul Radin's anthropological studies of the American Indians, 1972. Among the Winnebago tribes, there was always a figure that appeared happy at the burials, at their burials, and a figure that appeared sad and tearful at their festive rituals. This primitive and phallic hero could undergo disassociation of parts of the body and could manifest as an animal. The trickster is an anthropological and archetypal figure and is needed by the soul. It appears in various forms across a range of cultures. Ancient Greek had Ulysses, who was full of tricks, such as his idea of the Trojan horse. After 10 years surrounding the city of Troy, Achilles' pride was not enough to secure victory, even though he was the strongest of heroes. Only the trickster tactics of Ulysses the mythological descendant of Hermes, the patron of thieves, thieves. Also, incidentally, I would add, 
linked to Thoth. Or at least some Eastern just was. Though synchronicity is a thing, so there we go. Indeed, Ulysses was the mythological descendants of or descendant of Autolysus, who was the son of Hermes. According to the same versions, Autolysus generated the great trickster Sidlysus, who bore Tantalus death itself. Other versions say that Ulysses was a descendant of Syphilis. Syphilis, whatever, I don't pronounce it right. Rendau, 1991. In Greek imagination, the trickster hero was the opposite of the idealized classical hero figure. The trickster appears in many different forms in a range of other cultures, such as the medieval court jester who seems superficial and foolish, but sometimes provides a king with great truths. Shakespeare portrayed in this in King Lear, in which the protagonist is living a life of complete decadence and his kingdom is under the threat of total ruin. It is the court jester, the symbolic shadow figure or trickster, that with his jokes and games gradually makes the king, who represents the principle of consciousness and the model of the ego in the kingdom, aware of his decline. Carnival is the ultimate celebration of the trickster, observing as a period of renovation in which repressed feelings are expressed. The typical carnival figure in Brazil is the malandro, meaning scoundrel, another trickster figure that is associated with betrayal, theft and deceit, as well as creativity, as shown in the musical of the Brazilian musician Chico Buric, Opera do Malandro, for the for more than Malandro in Brazilian culture, see Damata 1978. As I was saying that, I just had an idea, funny enough, about Warhammer 40k. Now, if you don't know about it, I guess it won't really mean much to you, but there's the Eldar, which is basically space elves, and they had this dramatic fall from grace long ago, because where they were so decadent, they their decadence birthed a, a chaos god, a dark evil chaos god of, of perfection, obsession with perfection and hedonism, in sadistic hedonism, hedonism in a sense. Think, I guess, Epstein's Island, but also obsession with perfection in art as well. Funny enough, elites do quite like art in their own way. And so, but there's this attempt to save their race. And this is done by, there's this essentially, if you think in terms of archetypes, a character called Eldred, who's basically a magician. And he is trying to save him, but he's got an ally. He maybe he could work, represent the conscious right attempting to save or rebirth um the god of death of the elder which of the name i can't remember the top of my head but the elder god of the dead and so they their god of the death is gone so 
the status quo is their souls are eaten by Sanesh. Pretty bad, right? They don't want like that. They're not happy with that. So they're trying to change it. So what they're doing is they're allying with the clowns. Oh, okay, it really doesn't sound... Um... Oh, well. So they're allying with the Harlequins. Now, generally, there's light. There's the Eldar, regular Eldar, and the Dark Eldar. The Dark Eldar are those who just, after the fall, carried on doing their thing in some depraved city. I won't give you more information than that. That's all you need to know. And they stave off their souls being eaten by torturing people. So service us out much. And the Eldar, as a whereas the light Eldar or whatever, they, they go more being pure. But what and also all the gods, pretty much, most of the gods of the Eldar were eaten by Sanesh. But one of them is in several pieces, the god of war and wrath, I think. But the other one that's alive still in the webway, which is, you could say represents an unconscious, part of the unconscious in a sense, but also not the same part of the unconscious as the warp, which is the more negative part, stereotypically never negative part, archetypally of the subconscious. So, in it, and what are they doing? Well, these are trickster figures, absolutely. They completely represent trickster figures. They're like jesters and clowns. They use deception and trickery to get their way. And they are an ally of the consciousness. So the fall archetype is allying with the magician, we representing the conscious in this case, and also transformation, I would say as well. Perhaps the trickster actually represents a sort of feminine energy, maybe, maybe, but it's typically a male, so I don't know. In any case, interestingly, it lines up to what I was just reading about the trickster being an ally in bringing down Siegfried. And they're trying to bring down Sinesh, although I can't really, I'm not sure if I can compare Siegfried to Sinesh. Well, on the face value, Okay, here it is. On the face value, Siegfried, the hero, the elites, presentation on the heroes, the celebrities we worship, right? They, well, they represent noble martial values and all that stuff. You know, they represent certain virtues, or at least the perception of certain virtues, but really they're doing dark stuff in the background, Sineshi stuff, perhaps, in a sense. And Sineshi was also a god of pride pride in your work, suppose as an artist, he's like obsessed with his work being perfection. So obsessed that he would do anything, no matter how dark, for perfection. So, yeah, so that's being related to pride and that the whole thing of their fall being pride before the fall, birthing the national in the first place, it actually lines up. So, yeah, that's a surprising connection, isn't it?
also there's a psychic awakening at the moment going on in recent years in the plot the latest developments in the galaxy in 4.4 k so that is related to what's going here what's going on in real life i noticed that a while ago but yeah there's that it may not be deliberate as well it might just be synchronistic so In that I am elaborating on the trickster figure as I consider it significant that this character appeared in 1913 to help Jung defeat the Germanic hero. The strategy used is sordid and cunning and involves an ambush, a typical trickster ploy. This fantasy seems to be an unconscious pr process that was significant in controlling Jung's omnipotence and very high ego ideals, issues that he had, along, that he had to confront within himself at various points along his life. His ambiguity in relation to Nazism, which emerged in force 20 years later and would lead to the start of a war that was to be even more cataclysmic than the previous one, would be a controversial issue for Jung and the Jungian community in general. Did Jung really kill Siegfried in the ambush? Did he really forge an alliance with the trickster? Subsequent events show that Siegfried survived to a certain extent and had to be confronted again on various occasions. So there we go. And so there's more I could go into, but I feel like we've covered a fair bit. We've got to sort of notable point here. Also, I need to call it. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, so I'm going to do another episode. This is going to take be more episodes than the synchronicity book. I can tell. Also, I, just, I could have gone through more pages and just elaborated on other stuff less, but there's no problem, in my opinion, with me going on these digressions. In fact, me being inspired by stuff as I read is the whole point. Oh, interestingly, I haven't really been doing reviewing in the typical sense, have I? Well, I mean, there's a lot of gold in this. It's great. Any criticisms that I have? You know, I would like to have criticisms. I just haven't bought, unfortunately haven't got any. I, I, I'm loving this, this is great. The only criticism might be that I'm interpreting it in different ways than they are. But it's not really a problem. Everyone interprets the text differently. And I've got the, I've got hindsight uh, and my own unique perspective, so. Okay, so that's the end of, this episode is part of it. I hope you enjoyed and um, well, bye for now.